0: Well, friends, let me encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're almost to the most controversial part, but I think hopefully I can string it out a couple more weeks before we get to the really challenging section of the 70 weeks. We come instead tonight to what may seem to be a bit of a bland topic, but uh, I don't think it is. We come tonight to Daniel chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 19, so a little less long than normal in Daniel, but still uh, fairly lengthy. Let me encourage you, though, that uh, here we have one of those classic model prayers. Some people collect model trains, the Christians should collect model prayers when it comes to the Word of God. Let's hear now Daniel chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 19, Let's hear Daniel's word. Let's hear God's word. Let's receive it in faith. That means we trust it will do something to us. Beginning in verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by the centimede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that According to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against them and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord your God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, By your name. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. And ask that He would bless us as we come to hear His Word preach. Father, give us insight, give us conviction. Give us Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. It's interesting if you were to count up the number of books that have been written about the various sections of Daniel 9. Many, many more books have been written about the last few verses about the 70 weeks and the desolations and the times and the future and the questions of what's going to be with these numbers in 62 weeks. And we'll get into all that with some of it in the weeks to come. But I guarantee you that if you were to count up the number of books that have been written just on that little section versus the number of books written on this large chunk of the chapter, it would uh, not be that many. And why is that? There's a great classic quote, I think many folks have said it, at least I know John Owen back in the day said it, what an individual, what a person is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What you are in private, what you are on your knees before God, that is what you are and no more. And I think that's one reason why we don't like this part of Daniel chapter 9. We want to get to really the controversial stuff because this part is far more convicting and that part's a lot more fun, at least to think about. It's not as convicting, I suppose, for most of us, but the reality is this is the big chunk of the chapter. This is most of what the chapter's about. So what is, what is happening here? What is happening here is actually we begin to discover the secret of why Daniel was a man of God we begin to discover the secret of why Daniel was actually so powerful, so strong, so courageous, so humble, so effective for God. And the secret's not that he knew about 70 weeks. The secret is prayer, and particularly how he prays. As I said at the very beginning, some folks collect model trains. Christians should collect model prayers. Here's a model prayer that we can look at. So let's look at it. Let's look first before we get to the prayer. The first couple of verses give us a timestamp. We're given a setting, you know, in the movies, occasionally they kind of move from one place to another and they give you a timestamp. They say 10 years later, well, here we get the timestamp. Verse one, in the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by it's sent to Mede. And that should tell you that we have skipped some time. We're now from Babylon in the last chapter, and the vision of the ram and the goat. We're now into Persia time. We have a new empire. Of course, if you recall, Daniel's divided up really into two sections, and they both cover the same period of history. The first half and the second half recovers it, covers the first half, but from God's point of view. It gives us a theological take on those events. And so we now have the theological take, God's eye view, of what's happening to his people when they've been in exile. Now, we're told here that Daniel is reading his Bible. Particularly, he's reading his book of Jeremiah. And particularly, though he doesn't mention it, I'll tell you, he's reading Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12, and Jeremiah 29, 10 through 11, most likely. He's reading about 70 years, this prophecy, That God had given to Jeremiah, that Israel, that Judah would be in exile for 70 years. He's reading his Bible. And he's not wondering about what are the 70 years? He's not wondering. He's not mystified. He's not baffled by it. In fact, he's stirred by it. He's excited about it. Because he now knows if God's right, as he said to Jeremiah, then... The time's come. Payday, restoration day, a day of joy and triumph. He knows God's promise that when the 70 years granted to Babylon are over, as he mentions in Jeremiah, I shall intervene on your behalf and shall fulfill my promise to you by bringing you back to this place. He knows God has said 70 years. Then you're coming back. So what did he do? Verse 3. He knows the promise. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. It's fascinating here. David does not say, I have a promise from God. I'm just going to... Live until it happens. He does not say, you know, I have God's word. He said he's going to be there for me. I'm waiting, God. Come on, bring it. Bring the blessing. Bring the deliverance. Bring the promise. No, What does he do? He he prays. It's striking here. He takes the promise of God and he uses it as the jet fuel for his prayers. He uses it as the fuel for his prayer. He does not take God's promise and say, all right, I got it. I'm waiting, God. Now he, he, he understands that God's purposes, that God's promises are not revealed in Scripture as excuses for you to be lazy about prayer or about anything. But actually, God's promises are given to spur you. We saw it this morning. Why does God give you his gospel grace that you might live as a citizen of heaven? You're already in heaven, therefore live like it. You think of the disciples. What's the great commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So sit back, guys. Just chill out, just relax. And I'm going to make the whole world Christian. Is that what Christ says? No, it's not. He says, therefore, go. Teaching, making disciples, baptizing. Go. You see, Daniel realizes that God employs means to achieve his ends. And one of the classic means is prayer. And Daniel uses God's promises to drive him to prayer. And notice he gets them from the Bible. He does not pull out his devotional book. He does not pull out, you know, he does not scour the internet and say, What Christian language can I use to pray about? He takes the Bible, he takes Jeremiah, and he says, All right, God, here's what I'm gonna pray about. You've given it to me in your word. Isn't that a challenge for you when you're thinking about praying? You're like, you know, I know I should pray. I know Christians pray. I probably should pray what do I pray for? Hmm. You know, let, let your mind wander. Maybe you have a list and you're just going through your list and it's wrote. Even in trials, you know, you think that if you're going through a hard time, you'd pray about the hard time. But there's some people who go through hard times and they, they, they just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. So like, what should I pray for? Well, take a leaf out of Daniel's book. Search the scriptures to pray for what God has clearly promised. Let me give you some examples. Philippians 1.6. God has promised to complete a good work in us. So if he's promised to complete a good work in us, are you praying that he would complete that good work in you? What's that good work? I don't know what the good work is. You don't know either necessarily, but you can pray that God would complete it. And when you're going through trials, when you're going through the hardships, pray that God would complete the good work when it feels like it's a bad work. Or think of what Christ promises in John 14, a peace that transcends the peace the world gives. So when you're confused, when you're wondering, when you're not sure what to do and where to go, you don't have that peace, you're worried. What do you do? You pray. Lord, give me that peace that passes understanding. Give me that peace that goes beyond what the world gives. Or it's a very simple prayer. It's a prayer I learned when I was in third grade. Psalm 23, the Lord has promised to be my shepherd. He walks through the valley of the shadow of death with me. Look, if that's all you know in the Bible and you're wondering what to pray, pray Psalm 23 and you will be far better, far better equipped than many. You can pray that God will watch over your soul. He will hold your hand in the blackest, darkest night of your soul. It's the Daniel way. If you want to be like Daniel, As a lot of folks want to do, here's where you need to start. Take the Bible up and pray. Let scripture drive your prayer. You know, when I was uh, in first grade, I distinctly recall the moment when I made my first step into becoming an adult. I moved from Velcro shoes to tying my own laces. And you know how to do it. You do it with the rabbit ears. I had to learn it. It took a long time for me to learn it. I don't have fine motor skills that are very fine. A lot of us think we know how to tie the bunny ears when it comes to praying. A lot of us think we're adults and they're always second graders in that way. But you see, God knows that actually you're still in the Velcro stage. Most Christians are always going to be in the Velcro stage of their life. And God gives his promises as little Velcro strips that you just have to Put on. He gives his word. He gives very clear and basic and simple promises. And he just wants you to strap them together. Just strap them on in prayer. It's not complicated. The problem is that we don't want to do that. That's a stage. A stage is set for prayer. What's the actual prayer? The prayer begins verse 4. It begins in adoration. It begins in adoration. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession. You expect it to be confession time. And there's a lot of that. But in verse four, what does Daniel say? Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, before he gets into the bulk of his prayer, which is about sin, we're gonna get there in a second, that he has spent one verse, verse four. A little baby portion of praising God. You see, even when the main burden, even when he knows what he really needs to get to is to confess the people's sin, his own sin. He says, I need to adore God. And in fact, for you Bible nerds, he's riffing off, he's taking up Deuteronomy chapter 7. Which talks about God in your midst, the fearful God. But it also talks about a faithful God. You see the components here. He says, God, you're awesome. That means you're scary, you're fearful, you're mighty, but you're also the one who's faithful. You're you're fearful and yet you're faithful. Or in the classic words of Lewis in Narnia. You're good, but you're not safe. You're safe, no, 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 but you're good. You're not safe, but you're good. You're great, you make us tremble, and yet you keep us secure. Dale shows us that no matter the guilt you fear, where do you start with God? You start by adoring Him. You start by knowing Him. You start by praising who God is no matter the mess you're in. Definitely, if you're in battle, that you can't offer up a prayer. But it does mean that our natural prayer should be adoring God because we know who He is before we confess our sin. When uh, LBJ was the vice president during John F. Kennedy's reign, sorry, administration, <clears throat> he, he talked to a guy named Russell Baker. Russell Baker was working for the New York Times, and uh, he, he was running through the White House. LBJ saw him. He grabbed him and said, you! I've been looking for you! And he pulled this journalist, Baker, into his office. He began talking to him and haranguing him. he saying, you're so crucial to our administration. We need you. You're an insider. You're so important. And he just kept talking and talking and talking. And while he was talking, he grabbed a little notepad and he wrote a little something on it and he called his uh, secretary in and he handed her this little slip. And she returned a few minutes later and she gave the paper back. He looked at the paper, he threw it in the trash can, and he continued talking. And later, Russell Baker tracked down that piece of paper. He uncrumpled it. And LBJ had written on it, who is this guy I'm talking to? I have no idea who he is. Is that your prayer life? It's your prayer life before God, not knowing who he is. You offer up big prayers and have no idea what God is talking about. Do you know that you're speaking to a fearful God? We may fear the storms, but do we fear the God that we come to in prayer? And yet, do we know that he is a faithful God, even as he is a fearful God? You see, it's often wise for us in prayer to to remind ourselves of God's greatness, but of God's grace. If you forget God's greatness, what will happen? Both are key. Daniel brings both. If you forget that God's mighty, What does that mean? It means your prayers will never be big enough. You will always pray puny prayers. If you think God can't do much, guess what? You're not going to pray for much. If you think he's not powerful and mighty, an awesome and great God, you won't pray for awesome prayers. You'll pray for baby prayers. But on the other hand, your prayers are too small because you forget God's grace. You may think, I can't be fixed. You may think other people can't be fixed. And so you don't pray for them to be fixed. You don't pray for other people to be changed. You don't pray for your heart to be changed. You don't pray for your relations to be changed. You don't pray for your, your church to be changed. You don't pray for your job to be changed. You see, the solution that Daniel provides here is to adore God. And yet... Yet he does spend the chunk of his time, the vast chunk of his time on this great and consequential thing that we lack more than anything else in our day. He spends his great time confessing sin. As I mentioned on a regular basis, this is one of the more awkward things that we do in our liturgy. We confess sin. I've had more conversations with people about that question than almost anything else that we do. Why do you confess sin all the time? Why do you need to confess sin? Well, you notice here how Daniel deals with sin. Look at verse five. He says, we've sinned. We've done wrong. Look at verse six. We've not listened. Look at verse seven. You're righteous. We are openly shameful. Verse eight. Again, we're shameful. Verse nine. You have mercy. We rebel against you. See the point here? He he does not say, those other people are really bad. I'm really great. I'm Daniel, after all. I'm righteous. I'm a man of God. I'm a prophet of the Lord. I'm going to be in the Bible one day. He doesn't pray those prayers. He says, we, we, first person plural, we are us. He includes himself in the guilt of Israel. And yet, what is the great issue that he brings up? It's in verse 13. They've had this calamity. They have broken the covenant at Sinai. They have not obeyed as they ought to. Therefore, they're in exile. But what's the real issue? Verse 13. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. The issue is not that they've sent The issue is what they do when they sin. The issue is not that they've sinned. The issue is what they do when they sin. It has not driven them to actually grieve over their sin. It has not driven them to genuinely repent. You see, what concerns Daniel is not getting back to the promised land. What concerns him is the people who will be going there. What kind of people are they? I think for many of us, if I were to ask you, what do you think the great concern today in the American society or the American church is? You can give me all sorts of reasons. I'm sure I might have a different one. But how many of us would have as our concern? The hearts of Christians, how many of us would have as our concern? The people. Our own hearts, those sitting around us and next to us. How easy we run to other issues. How easy we say, oh, you know the culture. Oh, you know the world. Oh, you know those people. You see, for Daniel, the supreme issue is not that you sin. That's not the issue. The question is, what do you do afterwards? Do you have godly grief or do you have worldly sorrow? Do you seek true repentance that's genuine like Peter. This is the classic difference between Peter and Judas Iscariot. They both sin grievously against their They both betray their Lord. So it's not that, it's not betrayal. But the classic difference between Peter and Judas is that one repents and one does not. One is merely sorrowful over their sin and getting caught and realizing it and does not go to the Lord in prayer. That's Judas. You see, the reality is that many of us are averse to actually ever confessing sin and dealing with our guilt. There was a pastor once who was in the hospital making a visit to a gal who had broken her arm. And he went around to the other people. He he talked to her and they went around to other people. There was was an older lady who was in a lot of pain and she just kept screaming out, and repeating, I want to die. You hear this if you're in the hospital. You know, you hear people just saying, I want to die. So the pastor stopped. He said, can I talk to you for a second? She said, I want to die. So he just kept me talking to her anyway. And, and he said, You know, if you die, you're going to meet God. And so you need to start praying now if you're going to meet God. He's a holy God. And so you need to say, God, you, know what you need to pray Be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And she stopped saying, I'm going to die. And she addressed him. She said, I'm not a sinner. And if you knew me, you know I'm not a sinner. Somebody who thinks like that can never actually get anywhere near the kingdom of God. But if you let Daniel teach you, if you let his word teach you, you will know better than that lady. One of the primary marks of a Christian is that she or he mourns over his or her sins. What What makes the difference between the Christian and the world, you know, you know what it is? It's not some technique. It's not some, you know, food you eat. It's not uh, what you do. It's not that you're less wicked. It's that by the grace of God, you see what your evil actually is. You see how bad it actually is. You confess your sin. You know that the the church is the only body on earth that confesses sin and when the confession of sin dies out the church is no longer the church it's one of the main reasons why we confess sin you go to, go to look go to the suffrage city council go to the city council and observe and what will you find no confession of sin go to the united nations go watch it on online On TV, what will you find? No confession of sin. Go to the U.S. Congress, and what will you find? No confession of sin. There's only one place on earth that confesses sin. That's the church. In fact, this is what the prophet Ezekiel speaks about. We love the prophet Ezekiel. We love that one section. Ezekiel 36, the the valley of dry bones, and God says, I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to give you a new heart. We're like, yes, I want a new spirit. I want a new heart. God says, "He's going to clean you up. You say, oh, yes, I know I need to be cleaned up. Help clean me up. I don't want a stony heart. I want a live heart. I want your spirit within me. And the funny thing is we stop right there. This is Ezekiel 36, 27. But We don't read verse 31, which is included in the same chapter. Here's verse 31 of Ezekiel 36. Here's part of what it means to have a new heart and a new spirit and be a Christian. You shall remember your evil ways and your doings which were not good. You shall loathe yourselves because of your iniquities and your abominations. That's scary, isn't it? One of the marks of having a new heart is that you loathe yourself. Now, that doesn't make any sense to the psychology today. That sounds like, you know, you need to call the, the hotline, you need to help go see a therapist because you're, you're, you're wacky. Loathing yourself? Yes. A new spirit produces a new sadness. A new spirit produces a new sadness that says, what have I done to my God? What have I done? Not that says, I've gotten caught. Not that says, what have I done? There might be consequences. No, the great concern is, what have I done to my God? And that's Daniel's prayer. No matter what the storms of life bring, his great concern is verse 14. We have not obeyed his voice. He's righteous. We're not righteous. So what does he pray? As we close, what does he pray? What's the reason he prays? What's his main concern? It's very briefly in the end. The last four verses, verse 15 and following. Here's his request. It's verse 16. Let your anger and your wrath, O Lord, turn away from your city. He He begged that God would restore his people. Now, what are the arguments that he brings forth? Do you want restoration? Yeah, of course you do. You want to be a better Christian? Of course you do. Daniel wanted his people to to be better, better Jews in their day. He wanted them to return to the land. But what is the basis for his prayer? It's all over these four verses. Your city, your holy hill. Your people, your servant, listen to his prayer. Your own sake, oh Lord, make your face shine. Oh my God, verse 18, incline your ear, the city which is called by your name. Verse 19, do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your name is called over your city and over your people. Daniel is trying to use the only leverage he has over God and what is the leverage, so to speak, that Daniel uses It's not simply God's mercy. He uses God's mercy, of course. Yes, God is merciful. But he uses chiefly God's reputation, God's jealousy for his own glory. Daniel, in praying that God would show mercy and in the exile, he says, Daniel does, consider your own glory. You've ruined your reputation because you have given over Judah. You've given over all the temple vessels into the control of an evil empire. Now, of course, we can look back at the the conquest of Judah by Babylon and we can say that's part of God's judgment. Even if the media in Babylon didn't get it right, the popular interpretation, the, the mass media... The mainstream media of Babylon was saying this proves that their God is a podunk little league God. He can't do anything. This Yahweh, this Lord, nothing. Babylon's mighty. Well, Babylon's gone now. They're out of the picture. And so Daniel pleads. He knows God's word. He knows the seven years promise. So he pleads with God to restore his own name and reputation. And I wonder if, That is ever a concern in your life. I wonder how often we think about in our prayers and in our lives, how often we think about God's reputation. How often we think about how our words and our actions could impact the reputation of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, when most of us here do. At least it's on our social media profiles and it's on our, it's, we have crosses on our walls. We have, you maybe crosses around our necks. So we, we, we look like Christians. We call ourselves Christians. And yet, do we have a concern for the glory, the, the reputation, the name of God that we take on our lips? I mean, imagine how you could use this in your prayers. Let me just give you a few examples. What honor will it bring you, Lord, if my son is converted? What praise will come to Christ if my marriage is renewed? What credit to Jesus and his name if that saint can walk through this hard time and actually grow stronger and sweeter in their faith? You see, Daniel prayed for the people, but his prayer is God-centered. And the bottom line of the whole prayer is simply this. Save your sinful people, not because we're great, but for your own namesake. Save your people for your own sake. It's funny, isn't it? That um, when we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ. We, we hear his prayer. What's the corresponding prayer? What's oh, that high priestly prayer, isn't it? What's the corresponding prayer to Dale 9? It's really the corresponding prayer to so many of the prayers in the Old Testament. It's John 17. And what does Christ pray? He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. You have given him authority. This is eternal life. I glorified you. What's he talking about there? He's saying, I cared about your name. I cared about your reputation. He goes on to say, Christ does. I've shown your name. To the people that you gave me. They're yours. They know everything now about you. You see what Jesus says? He says, I have accomplished what Daniel prayed for. He said, I have honored you and now glorify me. But here's the question. What was the glory of Christ? Where was the glory of Christ seen most deeply? It was seen, was it not, when he's lifted up that all men could look at him. And where is he lifted up? He's not lifted up on some palace. He's not lifted up on some mighty, you know, a magic carpet. He's lifted up on the cross. And that's the answer to our sin and guilt, friend. That's the answer to the prayer of Daniel. The answer to the prayer of Daniel is the cross of Christ. Because it is there that the mercy of God, the justice of God, and the name of God are lifted up high. What the, what the devil looks at and says, that is my victory. Christ says, no, it's not. It's my glory. Because what do we think about nowadays? What do we glory in? We glory in the cross. If you're a Christian, what do you glory in today? What enables you to pray to God even? Is it not the grace of the cross? So let us come and be people who are not so obsessed with the uh Controversial topics of Daniel and I, but those who are focused on what Daniel's focused on, which is prayer. Let us be in private what we are and that and nothing else. People who know their God, who trust his promises, who confess their sin, and who seek to glorify his reputation, not our own. We're so concerned about our own reputation. Ought we not to be more concerned about God's glory and his reputation? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask and plead that you would make your name great, even if that means our names have to be small. That you would make your glory, reputation mighty, even if ours have to be minuscule. That you would show us our sin. We have people who would confess and repent. And that above all, you would be glorified in us. Make us a people of prayer. Public, yes, Public prayer. Sit down to eat. We pray, but Lord, make us the people of private prayer as well. We ask that you to do this by your Spirit. In the name of Christ, Amen.